0: be reading from Second Chronicles 33, verses 10 through 13. Adonai spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore, Adonai brought against them the commanders of the king of Ashur's army. They took Manasseh captive with hooks, bound him in chains, and carried him off to Bevel. Then when he was in distress, he began to appease the anger of Adonai, objectly humbling himself before the god of his ancestors. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his plea, paid attention to his entreaty, and brought him back to Yerushalayim, to his kingly office. Then Manasseh understood what Adonai really is God. That was good, Hillary. I, I stand by my previous comment. That was good. That was fine. Okay. Well, welcome. We have some visitors today, I know, and other folks. There's Superman in the second row there, Mr. Alpert. So, um, not to, to, uh, to get too confusing on next week, but just again to reiterate, next week is Ted Pierce, and then the next day begins uh, what's called the High Holy Days or the High Holidays, sometimes we hear it said in, in, in Judaism, it begins with Rosh Hashanah. And we've been talking, if you've been with us either at services, even last week Rabbi Chaim talked about it a little bit, as well as in our Bible study uh, Three, or I guess it'd be four weeks ago now. This is really confusing. Four weeks ago, we had two weeks where we spoke about uh, Selichot. You've heard that word several times. We had the responsive reading uh, regarding Selichot, which are traditional penitential prayers um, that are said in Judaism. And the kind of traditional idea is that on Rosh Hashanah, the book of life is opened up, and you want to get your name in there before it's closed. At Yom Kippur you've got ten days, so you 're introspecting you 're trying to get right with God and so forth and and uh, but just to let you know that uh, that Judaism does not necessarily just you know uh, adhere to this idea that we repent once a year it 's not like that at all. in fact, there are three kind of main pillars uh, in modern Judaism of prayer, repentance, and then benevolence or, or giving so uh, repentance is a big one, and the idea is that you know you want to repent one day before you die that 's really all you need to do right so but we don't know when we're going to die, so you repent every day. So, that, so Judaism does adhere to this idea of repentance, and that's kind of why we are identifying with Slichot. We feel that where tradition lines up with Scripture, there's nothing wrong with that um, and so forth. So in a way, we are identifying identifying with this time of the year uh, in terms of e- examining ourselves and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and that's what we're going to talk about today is this idea of repentance. That's what's going on in this, in this passage from... Uh, from 2 Chronicles, and uh, also found in the Book of Kings. I'll talk a little bit about the differences when you read the, the different accounts in those historical books. But there are some, some roadblocks, some things that I think hinder us or make us maybe maybe a bit, um, I don't want to say gun-shy, but a little bit, you know, uncomfortable maybe when we talk about repentance. It's such a big, you know, it seems like a big do-it kind of word, repent, you know, and there's some things that I think that, that, that are roadblocks to us when we, when we talk about engaging in repentance or when that, that topic comes up. Um, number one is that I think it might conjure up this image of feeling weak, you know, uh, W-E-A-K, weak, not strong. You know, if you repent, then you're defective and there's something wrong with you. There is, but uh, that's, uh, <laughs> we'll save that to later. But you know that that's sometimes the idea. If I, you know, repenting, I you know I feel uncomfortable because what am I saying when I repent? Um, we could also become too calloused to repent, too resistant to repent. And what I mean by that is that the longer you live, I think, the more opportunities you have to kind of stack up mistakes. You know, to kind of mess up so often that it becomes a point where you feel a bit like, here we go again, you know? I'll never be able to change. Uh, God's probably sick of hearing from me anyways, so why bother? Besides, I've repented. For most of us, you know, this idea that I've repented, and we think of the big one. We think I repented once. It was the biggie. I confessed that I was a sinner. I confessed that Yeshua was Lord, and that's a big one. It's a very big one. If you haven't done that, that's a, that's a big one, Right? And we think, well, we've done that. So that's repentance. Sometimes in, in the larger body's mind, you know, I've repented. I've done it. I've done. I've said the. I've said the prayer. I've walked the walk. Whatever it might be, um, Yeshua's come into my life. So I'm good. I'm covered. I'm covered. I I have repented. Another aspect of how I think we we tend to deal with repentance, we can be the opposite. We can be one of those people that's really very very comfortable to just laying it all out there constantly, always laying things out before God and just doing it like that, and we become very uh, flippant about it, you know? In other words, we know our shortcomings. We regularly and very easily just throw up our list of things to God, our our one-liners, and we, we call that repentance, and we ask Him to forgive us, and then we move on. But I want to say that any any of these things, or any variations of these themes, any of these that may 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 have things that may have triggered you to think about, um, really are you know th- these kind of roadblocks uh, to our willingness to repent. They really end up just putting the focus on us. Any of those things, or any of those variations of those things, they put the focus on us. They put the focus on our own shortcomings, and really. Um, what it boils down to is our lack of a willingness to, to trust God and what he can do. If we're just focusing on we're weak or we're going to mess up again or I've made the big repent or, you know, I tell God everything. I mean, ultimately, it's, the focus can shift too much on us and away from what, what, uh, what's, what God is doing and our willingness to trust him. So it's in this frame of mind, if you can stay in that frame of mind, hopefully, uh, that I want us today to look at what the scriptures tells us about one of the the kings of the southern kingdom, the southern kingdom of Judah, and that was King Manasseh, what Hillary read today. And what I, what I called in our, in our message title, His Fall and Rise, and with regard to his relationship with God. And quite frankly, I, when I thought about it after I had already sent it to press um, for that title, there was really no, the, the fall, it's less of a fall. It kind of started off at the bottom, if you read kind of the whole context of the story, and it's more of really his, his rise, in a sense. And uh, because he started in, in in a place of just like Floyd was talking about the, the sin of unbelief, if you will, or uh, our guest here today was talking about you know, people not believing in God, he started off in that position of just a rejection uh, and, and an igno- ignoring of, of God, dismissal of God, in a sense. So, for those of you who are just fully versed in who Manasseh is and what years he reigned and all that kind of stuff, I won't bore you with that. But I will go over some of the information about Manasseh. I think it's important to to kind of look at this person and what do we know about, about Manasseh. Um, first thing we know about Manasseh, King Manasseh, is that he was a descendant of David. And I think this is important. Uh, you may not have realized that. He's a descendant of David through, through um, Solomon. We see that in the beginning of 1 Chronicles uh, when he talks about genealogy. You also read about Manasseh in uh, the genealogy of Matthew chapter 1. He's in the line of Messiah okay? Um, He's got the same name as Joseph's eldest son. If you were to, you know, I was doing a search to see all the verses in the Bible about Manasseh. Well, there's a ton. I'm like, oh, I got to read all this? Oh, most of these are about Joseph's son, Manasseh, different Manasseh. But interestingly, when I looked in that, you know, uh, Joseph's son Manasseh was named. That name Manasseh means to forget or to disappear from memory. And if you know the context of when Joseph named Manasseh. For him, that was a very positive thing, because he, you know, he, uh, he was in prison, he had been forgotten about, and then he kind of got out, and his position in life changed, and now he had the son, and he said, oh, I'm going to name him Manasseh, so I just can forget all that other stuff. And I kind of find it ironic that this Manasseh, I think, uh, forgot a lot of stuff, because he was raised with uh, a good father. His, king, his uh, father was King um, was Hezekiah, and Hezekiah is you know, one of the few good kings uh, in Judah, and we know if you get into the, 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 the chronology of Kings and Chronicles, you'll, your hair will end up looking like mine and Rabbi Chaim's if you try to figure this all out, all the dating, and it's very detailed, it's very mathematical, you might like it, REO, and you try to f- they try to fit everything in there, but the bottom line is that he had a co-regency, he reigned at the same time. When you read that he was 12 years old when he began to reign, don't think of, where, where's Isaiah, Isaiah Urbach there, he's 12, right, 13 now? So don't, don't think of just all of a sudden being that age and boom, you're you're leading. I mean, he, his father brought him along with him. He had a lot of years with his father, uh, reigning with his father. Um, and that being said, you know, um, he obviously forgot a lot of the things that his father taught him because his father was a very good king. But I wanted to stop for a moment, just as a one point of application, I think um, will be will be helpful to us. Is that you know. Many of us, our own families, our siblings, uh, you know, our our parents or our children, you know, we we can't force them to believe in God or to follow his commandments or to follow his statutes and all these type of things, and many of us struggle with that. We often pray for many of our different family members, extended family in this congregation, and we want people to come back to the Lord and so forth, And, and in a real way, very real way, we can't or cause people to believe like we believe or, or to follow the Lord necessarily, but I want to encourage you that it's still very important uh, how we do live and what we do impart to them and what we do instill uh, to them and how we live out our lives in front of them, because uh, as we'll see as I go through and kind of point out some of the things from Scripture about Manasseh and just how horrible he was and just how seemingly initially and, you know, gave no thought at all to God. The truth is, is that when you, you see what was, you know, when you read what, was, what Hillary read today, clearly there was something in there. There was something that he was able to dig out because he says some pretty amazing things um, that, that I'll go through, kind of how he prayed. In fact, um, his prayer in its entirety it's not in the Bible, but it's actually in an apocryphal book. Supposedly, there are manuscripts that talk about it. When you read it, uh, it's actually the book of uh, the book of Manasseh. I didn't realize there was a full book of Manasseh. It's his prayer, supposedly. However, you read it, and it's it's pretty clear that somebody who just met God's not going to pull this kind of stuff out. I mean, he had something down in there. So don't lose hope if you have uh, family members and, and other people that you you know, you know really want uh, to, to live a certain way, and maybe they're not. It's still important what you instill, what you impart, and, and how you live in front of them. So hopefully you can take that as an encouragement when you see the turnaround in Manasseh. Realize where he came from, realize who his dad was, and so forth. Um, so what else can we say about Manasseh? Uh, one thing that's often pointed out is that he had the longest reign he was in charge as a king longer than any other king uh, of the Southern Kingdom, 55 years. And uh, I bring that up because it's a fact, but also because I want to I point out that length of reign, or outward success, if you will, um, does not necessarily or equal divine blessing. Okay? Um, I think about missionaries, for example. Uh, anybody heard of Jim Elliott before? I mean, died at a ripe old age, right? He was a young man. I think he was in his 20s. You know, died in, right initially on the mission field after all kinds of training. Uh, do we look at that and say, oh, well, not a success? There was a guy named Yeshua, you know? <laughs> again, died at a ripe old age, right? No. Only ministry for three years, right? Um, so, again, we need to be, I just want to bring that up just so that we, we're, we're wary of judging um, too much by way of fruit or what we might, what we might judge as the evidence of success, especially when we're judging it by worldly standards. Like, hey, 55-year reign, has got, got to be something good to this guy. Not necessarily. Um, because in the case of Manasseh and his long reign, it was uh, arguably the worst and most despicable reign uh, by any of the kings before him. Jewish kings, Gentile kings, pagan kings, a- anybody. Definitely the most uh, the despicable one. He He imitated the inhabitants of the land that he was that God drove out before them, all the the, the horrible practices. He imitated those things. He erected idols to other gods. He put those idols in the temple of Adonai, in the temple of of God, the God of Israel. He burned his children to other gods. I mean, the list is pretty ugly. There's prostitution, all kinds of stuff. And not only was he bad, it's one thing to be bad, but it discusses the way that he influenced others to be bad. In fact, right before, uh, right before what Hillary read in verse 9 of Second Chronicles 33, it says that Manasseh misled Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that they did more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the people of Israel. When you read the preaching that comes, you know, years and years, sometimes like a century or more, after the time of Manasseh, um, the effects were still lingering. You read uh, in Nehemiah, for example, uh, in chapter 9 of Nehemiah, Nehemiah is going through the history of of the people, and he he characterizes this time as a time when when presented with the word of God, what the people did is they put it behind their backs. It says, put the Torah behind their backs, and they shrugged their shoulders. What what are you talking about kind of thing. I mean, it's pretty graphic, and this is specifically from this time period. In fact, um, also, when you read the prophet Jeremiah, when he's talking about the, he's kind of prophesying, uh, when God's prophesying through Jeremiah about all the the problems that are going to come upon Israel, um, Jeremiah says, you know, speaking through Jeremiah, uh, the Lord says, I will make them, Israel, a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth because of what King Manasseh, son of Hezekiah of Judah, did in Jerusalem. So the overall, you know, if anyone were to, You know, the effects were lingering, and if if there was anybody who ever wanted to try to get God's attention in a bad way, and we can think of all kinds of bad people, but really, none of them really stack up to to what Manasseh did. In fact, one author said this. He said, you know, if Manasseh had studied specifically the scriptures to find out what would be the things that would really, really get God going, what would really turn him off, really make be detestable to him, no one could have done it better. If he'd have have studied it to try to figure it out, that's kind of how, how one author put it. No one would have done a better job than Manasseh. Um, in the Second Kings account, if you're not familiar with these historical books, Kings and even the prophetic books around that time, Jeremiah, Isaiah have a lot of similar material. So Second Kings has uh, a lot of similar material to Second Chronicles, or First and Second Kings and Chronicles. And put it that way, have a lot of similar material. Um, in the Second Kings account of Manasseh's reign, God says this: He said, "The Lord said by His servants the prophets, because King Manasseh of Judah has committed these abominations." Has done things more wicked than all that the Amorites did, who were before him, and has caused Judah also to sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such evil that the ears of everyone who hears it hears of it will tingle. I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it clean and turning it upside down. It's pretty graphic. Uh, you know what what's going on here and so you think boy this guy you think he just wrote manasseh off and I think that's important for us to remember as we progress through this today both uh, second kings as well as second chronicles do talk about these horrible things but second chronicles is is the is the one that contains what i call this this repentance piece what what was read today and Some people feel very uncomfortable because you hear all this stuff and this horrible stuff and God said he's going to wipe them like a dish and when you hear what I did to him, your ears are going to tingle and and for generations people are going to suffer because of this. I mean, Daniel was in Babylon because of what his ancestors did. All this stuff. And yet it seems like a very simple, oh, Manasseh (coughs) repented and God restored him. What? You know, for some people this is very uncomfortable. They feel that it whitewashes the whole thing, the wickedness of Manasseh that he got off too easy, that it was just uh, cheap grace. Some have even argued that it's manufactured, that this account is really not, <laughs> there's no way. It couldn't be this way. It couldn't be this easy. It's manufactured. It's not a legitimate piece of scripture. I and mean, that's, that's argued all, kings and the dating and all kinds of stuff is argued that way. It's Kings and Chronicles. But they say this isn't, this isn't really legitimate. This was changed. But I want to say that, no, I, I don't believe it was changed. I don't think that's really the case here. What we're just seeing is a, we're seeing a fuller picture. We're getting to see, as Heim says often, you know, the other facets of the of the diamond. Um, and also, you know, even even after Manasseh had this aha moment that w- that was read here, and where he kind of we think like he kind of got it, uh, things are just not all that rosy. Don't read it that way. Don't read that. Oh, everything is hunky dory and everybody was restored uh, and everything's great. No, the effects did last. I mean, I read the preaching there that, that lasted. Um, Uh, Also, right after this, if Hillary kept reading, it talks about that the people still maintained the high places that Manasseh had built. Um, Again, there's the preaching that I talked about. But you also see uh, when you read about the death of Manasseh, he was not uh, really received that well. Even the people. He had led people astray to the point where maybe he had turned, but the people, he had still screwed some people up, (laughs) to put it bluntly. Um, And he suffered for that as well. You see about the the different kings that that passed away um, prior to him. It says, for instance, Jehoiada grew old and died at the age of 130. He was buried in the city of David with the kings, it says. Jotham passed away and was buried in the city of David. Hezekiah passed away and was buried on the ascent of the tombs of the descendants of David. So the kings were buried together. They were in the city of David. It says all the people of Judah and the residents of Jerusalem buried him. That was Hezekiah with great honor. What did they do with Manasseh? 2 Chronicles 33.20 says Manasseh passed away and he was buried in his house. In other words, they put him out in the backyard. A little bit different. So all that to say that second the second chronicles account because sometimes I know we Google and we do different things and look and if you read you might, you might see some of these things so I want to make you aware of the fact that uh, I believe second accounts I mean the, the second chronicles account of this uh, this is legitimate that's a legitimate account complete with all its warts complete with all its warts of scripture and don't forget um, Manasseh had to be had to be restored in a sense or so certainly he needed to not be killed off right. Don't forget Matthew chapter 1, right? He's part of the, of the line of, of David and the line of Messiah. So it's all very legitimate. So, what do we do with all this? I think, well, when we, when we consider this, if you're like me, you say, whew, that guy was a bad dude. But that's not me. I'm not like Manasseh. How about it? How about you? Are you? You know, if you want to turn your text, we're going to we're going to go through some of these verses again. But uh, if you look at the way that this text started today, again, this was Second Chronicles thirty three in verse ten. Look at how it started out today. Kind of what what tipped things here. What's the way things started off is that Manasseh was like God didn't didn't get him when he was putting his his. Uh, He didn't uh, get him when he was passing passing through the fire. It says that the Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they gave no heed. They gave no heed. The word there means that he wasn't attentive. He wasn't stretching his ear. He wasn't tuned in to what God had to say. He was being a bit of a a space cadet, as it were. He was out to lunch, so engrossed in what he was doing that he, he couldn't hear the Lord's voice or simply did not turn his stiff neck to pay God any attention. You hear that, you hear that a lot in, in those Nehemiah accounts about the people and what they were. They had very stiff necks, you know? And I think we think about a stiff neck as being stubborn and so forth. Yeah, but I mean, a stiff neck doesn't allow you to do a couple things. It doesn't allow you to, you know, someone calls your name, hmm? You know, it's kind of hard to turn and look. A stiff neck doesn't allow you to really get down too easy or even look up to God, right? So um, that's really what Manasseh was doing. He had a stiff neck, didn't pay God any attention, so God had to grab him. He said He grabbed him with with manacles, and He grabbed him with um, manacles or handcuffs, and He grabbed him with uh, with hooks. And some translations might say hooks in the nose. And just so just so you know, there there are there are ancient pieces of art and so forth that show this is a way that the Assyrians would actually lead lead people. They would put a hook in their nose, or actually they put a hook in their lower lip. And so all of a sudden you're getting you know pulled somewhere by, your, you can't really, you have really no choice where you're going to go at that point. And he wasn't carried off to Babylon. The text says that he was led there. And it's the same word, that, the same root word for the word walk. So, I mean, he was being pulled by his hands or his lip or his nose, and it really wasn't his choice where he was going to go anymore. Um, this made me think of a story, actually. Hey, Isaac, why don't you come up here for a second? I think, actually, I want Ariel to come too. This is a little, this is a little visual uh, story for you guys. So, Aria, you're going to play me. This is me as a kid. Fine strapping, <laughs> your man. And you're going to play my friend, Danny. Danny O'Connor lived across the street from me. And uh, so me and Danny are outside playing. We used to play all the time and just talking. And it had become dusk. You know, the sun had gone down. The streetlights were on. What does that mean? Got to get inside, right? So we're talking, and Danny, Danny's out there talking to me. And, and Mrs. O'Connor says, Danny, time to come in. Danny's just stiff-necked. He's just talking, to, talking to me. Wants to finish his conversation. Danny, come in. In a minute, Danny, come in. Nothing. Miss O'Connor comes out as I'm talking. <laughs> now, you can sit down. You can sit down. Now, I hope I didn't hurt your ear. But listen, I'd never seen that before. It's The only time I've ever seen that. But it, you know, it, it just got to a point where. Danny couldn't finish his conversation. His agenda was over, and, you know, Miss O'Connor grabbed him by that ear and walked away. I was probably, you know, this is probably like I was 10 years old. I remember that. It was a few years ago. Is it possible, is it possible that any of us are ever like that regarding God and the things of God? Anywhere along the spectrum of space cadet, to defiance, to simply, look, I just want to finish my conversation here. I'm, I'm doing something. I'll be there in a minute, right? Anywhere along that spectrum. Anywhere, is it possible that we're anywhere along that spectrum? In, in a place where if we're not careful, God may need to come out and grab us by our ear or our lower lip or our nose, you know? So we may not consider that we're on par with Manasseh in terms of our rebellion or our idol worship, uh, but the answer for us is the same, that we need to be attentive, we need to have our ears tuned in. We need to be willing to, to turn our stiff neck when he calls, to, to stretch our ear. You see that that used in, in, in the Hebrew Bible a lot. doesn't usually doesn't translate it that way, but it's, what it's really saying is that so-and-so stretched their ear. God stretched their ear in a good way, not like I stretched Isaac's ear. Sorry. We'll still be friends, I hope. so. He was late for the Torah service. I, it was a payback, just so you know. <laughs> he knows it. I know it. Now everybody knows it, okay? <laughs> everybody knows it. It's out there. I couldn't... Confessing time. So let's look a little more. I want to take the, the remainder of our time look a little more at this at this pivotal episode, the actual pivotal episode in Manasseh's life, this pivotal time of repentance, and see what it looked like, and see if we can, again, if we can extract anything um, out of it for ourselves in our relationship with God. So again, Second Chronicles thirty three ten says that tells us that Manasseh was not attentive; that he was indifferent and the thing and then things drastically changed god had his attention right and the text tells us that he had his that manasseh's attention was gotten only after he was in great distress the the word there is the word you have probably heard the word surus before you've been in yeshua at you heard surus just means trouble heartache other types of problems when he was in surus that's when god had his attention and let's let's face it sometimes that's what it takes to get our attention actually i say sometimes but the truth is uh it always takes that to get our attention when we're in service, right? So don't feel bad if you can relate to that, you know? Because when do we do things? When do we, when do we budget? Well, it's when we, when we bounce a check. When do we exercise? It's after the heart attack. When do we watch what we eat? It's when we can't button our pants. You know, that kind of stuff. It's like, it's when we're in service or when we're, we've got trouble or when things kind of come to a head. And it's no different. It's no different in our relationship with God. When we experience a family crisis or a relationship problem some kind of strain, any number of things that just seem to be physically impossible for us to, to, to deal with or to unravel. That's often when God gets our attention. So what's the answer? What did, what did Manasseh do? What did Manasseh do next when, after he was in service? Well, I, I do want to point out that he didn't launch into um, little one-liner prayers like, God, help me. God, I need to get out of here. Even if, you, even if you take this prayer and you were to read it, you don't see that in there either. Uh, but you get the gist of, of what's going on by what's in the Bible, and namely, there was a, a lead up to this thing. First, we see that he implored. It says Manasseh implored. You may have different words because the, the word here carries uh, the, an interesting idea. it 's an idea of almost a, a sickness or a weakness. it 's kind of the opposite of, of the word that the biblical word for heal or, to, or healing. so that 's the first kind of the, the condition that he was in. He was in this sort of sick and this very weak state. Keep in mind, it's not the word for prayer. He didn't pray yet. It's not the word. It's a different word. It's a word that involves uh, emotions. has to do with uh, easing or quieting or pacifying or soothing, imploring or begging. Literally, the text says that the first thing Manasseh did was present him in such a way as to have sought to soften the face of Adonai. Actually, soften the faces, but soften the face is what he wanted to do. And that's what you think about right away. I better soften this person's face, you know. You want to soften their face, right? Not that kind of soften. He he wanted to implore, beg in, in, in a position of weakness. He wanted to soften the face of the Lord. Um, the next thing it says that he did is that he humbled himself greatly. Again, not prayer yet, but he humbled himself greatly. Definitely a, a bent neck kind of posture. He was able to look around easily, to listen, to be alert, uh, to lower his head and to look up to heaven, all that kind of stuff. So, being this way, like I mentioned before, when you think about these things, um, this, is, this does not equate to weakness. It seems like it does in a sense, but really it doesn't, and I'll, I'll tell you why. Um, it doesn't equate to weakness in the sense that God's not set to crush you at that point in that, in, that, in that state of being. It's just simply the proper attitude of repentance before God. The text says that Manasseh undertook this posture and attitude on his own also. Very critical, very, very key, I think. In other words, it doesn't say that, that God humbled him. In a sense, we know he, he did with the situation, the circumstances, but it, it doesn't say that in the, in the words. It says that Manasseh humbled himself. And I want to suggest that it's much better <laughs> to do it that way than the other way. Because yeah. the other way is not fun, but the also the other way, when we are humbled by somebody or something, can cause some other reactions. It can cause us to dig in. It can cause us to come out swinging. It can cause us to stiffen up. Um, you know, but initiating the humbling and then being lifted up, as we see happens to Manasseh, is a better a better situation. And this is where I think the interesting thing for me in the text here, and I've kind of been hinting at it as we've gone along, is that he entreated, he humbled himself, and then, then it uses the word for pray. Then it says he prayed. Then he prayed. I would say that entreating and humbling and however we want to translate these these words, here, you look at a bunch of different translations is probably the best way to kind of get the feel for it because there's no perfect way. This is all interpretation here. Um, but once those things are done, that, that, that's part of prayer. But the truth is that for us, it's often not. We simply just launch into prayer without any of these things. Um, that's often how we do it. And then look what happened in verse 13. It says that God received his entreaty. God heard his plea. In other words, God was successfully entreated, successfully softened, successfully quieted. God was successfully pacified. We see, actually, God was actually influenced by prayer. Imagine that. So we have to be careful. Does God change his mind in situations? Because it sure this clearly seems like it says it right there. God was impacted by this. So God does change his mind. He does change his mind in the sense that we have many examples of God changing his mind in Scripture. We have uh, Moses interceding for the people, and God changes his mind not to destroy him. We have uh, the people of Nineveh repenting, and God decides not to to, to destroy them. But no, God does not change his mind in the sense that God changes fundamentally. We change our mind because, ah, we feel different this day than yesterday, or I'm feeling pretty, you know, generous today. It's not that kind of change. God only changes his mind in relation to he remains fundamentally the same that he always is, same yesterday, today, and forever. So he changes and he reverses circumstances and so forth, That, but he does it in alignment with his character. And that's, I think, a very key thing for us to think about in terms of uh, repentance and why it's even very valuable for us to understand that we appeal to a God who does, in fact, care. We appeal to a God where we actually have a chance of making it out alive. <laughs> you know, you go and do this to another person. We may talk about that in two weeks on Shabbat Shuva, But this is kind of all about our relationship with God today. It's very important that we, we realize that we're, we're going to be safe going to God with, with this attitude and this approach, that there is hope for us. The traditional slichot at this time of year, we actually had some in our in our responsive reading today, um, come from uh, Exodus 34, which has to do with the characters and the attributes of God, the gods of God who's who's gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, all this kind of stuff. It's very key that these things are rehearsed because God's ultimate desire, then we realize, is not to destroy us, and that's why we can come to repentance. That's, you know, that's that's the good news. That's the gospel. If you've not ever heard the gospel or the good news before, that's it, you know, I mean, I don't want to say there's not no more fa- facets to it or aspects, but the fact is is that when you're coming in repentance to God, many people are resistant because they think, you know, I'm, I'm going to be weak and I'm humbling myself in a negative way, and I don't need that. I don't need religion. I don't need God. It's a crutch, whatever. But, no, that, that's not it at all. It's not a, it's not a position of, of weakness. It's the foundation of the good news, the gospel. That there is a God who cares, and that can even take a person like Manasseh back in a sense. Because without that, without that characteristic of God, there would be no Yeshua. And I say that in a couple of different ways. There'd be no Yeshua in the sense of our story. If Manasseh was killed before he had kids, there'd be no Yeshua. And without that God, there'd be no Yeshua. In other words, the word Yeshua just means salvation. So there'd be no salvation as well. So Manasseh saw the light. He returned to God. He humbled himself before him. He then prayed God heard him, and God returned him to the kingdom. That's the, the cliff notes of, of what happened. But look again at the end of Second Chronicles thirty three thirteen. It says that he prayed to him, and God received his entreaty, heard his plea, and restored him again to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. And then it says, Then Manasseh knew that the Lord indeed was God. It wasn't until God restored him that Manasseh knew. And the word there is, is the word, same word on the front of the Torah cover, or the, the Ark cover. This idea of, of intimate, you know, in, intimate knowledge, really knowing, not just head knowledge. But it said that he knew. Manasseh knew that Adonai, the proper name of the Lord, He was the God, the Elohim. In other words, it was very, it was much more. It wasn't some kind of mystical uh, thought it was that he knew that this was god this was this was the guy from genesis 1 this is the you know the one that created the heavens and the earth Elohim, the same one the same word used there so does that mean that god is only recognizable as, as god when he restores us or does good by us based on our estimation removing our source does this example mean that Not necessarily, but I think it does mean that God can get our attention and he he can communicate with us. And, again, that he wants to, even when we are way, way, way off the beaten path. Scripture tells us in a couple places that he does not desire even the death of the wicked. A couple places in Ezekiel says, Do I actually delight in the death of the wicked, declares the Sovereign Lord? Do I not prefer that he turn from his wicked conduct and live? Say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but prefer that the wicked change their behavior and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil deeds. So the forgiveness of Manasseh, this, this situation I think is very, very instructive for us in a lot of different ways. Um, certainly it shows and it gives proof that God is faithful, God is faithful to his word. Um, earlier in, in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, It says that if my people who are called by my name humble themselves, if they pray, if they seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house so that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. Again, so we see that I think that this proves to us that prayers of repentance um, made to God do, in fact, get his attention. And while the text today emphasizes the, and it does, when you read this, you're going to see more than just these few verses when you read about Manasseh. This text really, the text of Manasseh emphasizes um, the amazing sins of Manasseh. even stretches out into other parts of Scripture. But more than that, it even more greatly magnifies the grace and mercy of God. In other words, if God can listen... And turn towards someone like Manasseh, how much more how much more are you and me? Is repentance easy? Comfortable? No. And why is that? Well, again, makes us feel like worms sometimes, makes us feel defective, makes us feel weak, like we're as bad as Manasseh. If you've got if you're someone that needs to repent, you must have done something pretty bad. Well, no, it's not about that. And we don't need to be as wicked as Manasseh to learn from his example. We also know it's not easy to repent because when we do repent, we don't necessarily just want to throw up a prayer, a quickie. Our attitude and our understanding prior to launching into our prayers is very important. It should be legitimate. It should be with emotion. It should be sharp, attentive to God, with a, with a you know willingness to bend our head and our neck and our ear toward, toward God. But the key to repentance really is understanding who we're praying to, because that removes our fear of being, of receiving uh, humiliation while we're being humble. It's not about that, and and it removes that idea, you know, that, that we won't be received very well. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for hearing us and for being there for us when we turn to you. We thank you, Lord, for the example you've shown us today in the life of Manasseh, showing us that no matter how far we stray, no matter how far we might stray, that you are true to your promises and that your ultimate desire is that we turn to you and that we live. In Yeshua's name we pray. Amen.